Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 901 with Corey Mintz. A boss I had who was a terrible boss who once gave me a great piece of advice that is so broadly applicable, which is never assume that your audience appreciates the value of what you're doing if you don't explain it to them. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering, and this is because Chow Now helps their restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. With Chow Now, take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site, and there are no setup fees or monthly payments. And what I really love about Chow Now is that you get to own your customer data. This is something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And when you schedule a demo, don't forget to ask about leveling up with Chow Now Direct, Chow Now's comprehensive online ordering and marketing package. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up today at chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. Now, I know you know about Plate IQ, but do you know about Plate IQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. Plate IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Plate IQ card. With Plate IQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued easily. And I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and custom approval workflows. To learn more, head to plateiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save 25% off implementation. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. And who likes data entry? No one. So you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with Margin Edge. They will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail. Don't worry about tech integration either because Margin Edge allows you to seamlessly connect your POS and accounting systems and get a daily P&L. And on top of all of this, Margin Edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes. Plus, you can compare actual costs versus theoretical costs. Head to marginedge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for 30 days. No contract, no setup fee. Plus, you'll get free unlimited training and support. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them, and What Comes After. Corey Mintz, are you feeling unstoppable today? 
I'm feeling very jazzed by the inflection you threw in there and your voice just went up as we knew them, right? We're not saying it's the end of restaurants. No, it's not the Armageddon. It's just the end of as we knew them for which we need the voice to rise. Well, so thank you so much for that. Of course, man. And I'm, I'm super excited for today's conversation. I really enjoyed listening to your book. I'm an audiobook kind of person on my morning walks. I was chewing through this content and honestly, we, we've spoken to a lot of the same people, um, I mean, you reference at least four or five people. They can't come to my mind immediately. Uh, so just reading this this book made me just, I just resonated so much with it because you share a lot of the same sentiment that I share on the podcast. Uh, things I believed after speaking to nearly 900 people of what's wrong with our industry and what we need to do. Because our mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And I really feel like the mission of this book is to create awareness of where we are and to get let people know to be self-aware that we can choose where we go. And I think that that's one of the big lessons I took away from today's book. I don't want to put words into your mouth though. So uh, before we kind of really dive in, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a, a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? The the mantra or a of, of the book, if it has one, is that uh, big change starts with little change. Big change you know, starts like the, with little change. The kind of change we sometimes are daunted by and thinking that it's impossible. Like we can't be part of it, but you know, the things that happen because laws change, policy change only happens because there's a collective will that is built up from a legitimate individual, a collection of individual wills. People want to see change. So our little actions do potentially affect eventually see real world. I love that, man. I love that. That's a great way to get this thing started. And I think it's a great sentiment because alone, the little effort that we make individually doesn't feel like a lot sometimes, but I feel like when you communicate, when you share messages, when you come together and we all do little things that collectively can be a big, big thing. And I think that's a great sentiment to start with. And it makes me think of Anthony Mintz. I believe I'm saying his name correctly um, from zero carbon footprint or zero you know who I'm talking about, right? Permission Chinese food and zero yes. footprint. One of my yeah. past guests as well. And you mm-hmm. said something about him um, that I think is really powerful. And kind of the words you just shared kind of bring that to surface. This idea of he, he started doing something, but then he didn't stop. You know, And that's, I think that's the secret yeah. is it's not going to be easy. And we can do little things, but just keep doing the little things and don't stop. And it, it compounds over time. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's the only antidote to the natural cynicism that sets in when we sort of look at our world and we go, Oh, you know, uh, recycling is a scam because yes, we should be recycling, but what is my, what does it matter whether I'm doing it in my house? If we cannot uh, mandate corporations to do this on the mega macro scale that they need to be doing it. Uh, but if we all uh, give in to the gravity of that cynicism, then, then, you know, what's the point of doing anything? And, and, Life kind of sucks when you believe that uh, uh, no change is possible. So, yeah, Anthony's. A pr- I've never spoke with Anthony, but I interviewed his wife uh, Karen uh, 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 Karen Leibowitz several times for the book and the story of them kind of scaling up from a food cart in the Mission District in San Francisco to a sort of nationally celebrated restaurant and all the changes they wanted to make there, but couldn't because of their partners and had to start their own business and have their successes and failure with that. And eventually, you know, for her at least realizing, you know what, advocating for policy change was full-time work, never mind the restaurant stuff. 
Yeah. So I'm really excited to start diving into the next supper. But before we get into the book, who who are you? What were you doing before this book? How did you set yourself up to be somebody to write this book? That probably wasn't what I was thinking when I went on my career path because I had no plan. Uh, I kind of... um, Fake it till you make it? Or no, that's not really... No, I, I'd, I'd say more of a, a Kramer-esque style <laughs> of falling backwards sometimes into success after a series of failures um, because no one taught me to plan ahead when I was young. Uh, I went to cooking school, um, you know, wanted to be a chef, cooked for six or seven years in a variety of restaurants, high-end, low-end, vegetarian, Italian, um, and had always dreamed of being a writer. And when I kind of reached the end of my road, I was, I was already too old doing what I was doing and not great at it. You know, I was like a a 28 year old garmage in a high end restaurant, you know, working with sometimes like the people at my level were 19 and 20 years old, you know, like the guy I started at the same time as I could tell this guy's going to be great. And he's now the head of fermentation at Nova, you know, like, and, and you could see them like not only are you better and t- more talented and hardworking than me, but you, you have 10 years ahead of me because I wasted my twenties getting high. Uh, and so, you know, but when I reached that end, I, I said, what I always wanted to do was write. And I just started writing, you know, for free, um, found, you know, blogs that were willing to publish me and uh, someone who had, reviewed a restaurant that I was the chef of small vegetarian restaurant. She was a restaurant critic, but also an author and a radio producer. And she took a break from her work and uh, recommended that I fill in for her. And I got that gig soon became the restaurant critic for the largest paper in Canada and transitioned into columnist, food writer, general food reporter. And after five or six years of sort of doing all kinds of different stuff about food and writing really started to wedge into the topic of labor and hospitality and this, you know, what to outsiders is a, uh, is a paradox. The idea that the fancier the restaurant, the less cooks are paid. Yeah. Um, and the more I kind of drove my vehicle down that road, you know, just the, 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 that the other path, the 95% of food media, which is like, where, what are the hot new restaurants? What are the trendy you know, dishes or recipes just were not interesting. And also editors would stop asking me to write those things because they could sense the hostility in my writing. Um, so I was burning bridges that well, way. It's really just- important. I actually, I, I love this because there's a, a lot of bullshit out there and I see it too, as somebody who covers the restaurant industry in my mission with this podcast is to obviously, like I always echo inspire, empower and transform, but also to get at the truth. And the truth is there's a lot of fucked up shit in our industry. And a lot of the people that we celebrate that, that I shouldn't say we as in the industry, although we do, but these mainstream media outlets glorify a lot of these chefs who are like you point out, don't have the best business practices, ethical business practices, and they themselves aren't the best mentally, like I guess mental health. I mean, a lot of the reason why they get to where they are is because they have mental disorder. They, they don't have good work life balance. They, and we, we try to recreate our, like their lives in our own lives. And I don't know if we should be doing that. You know, what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? 
Yeah, I, I, I was around at that time when the phrase chefs are the new rock stars started sort of gaining traction. Like somebody whispered it to me at dinner once as Time's if it was this. You heard this from me first, chefs are the new rock stars. Because we were at some fancy dinner and someone was bringing us, you know, something with foie gras on top and some, you know, foamy reduction, whatever. And they were like, isn't this like the coolest spot in town? Don't you feel like you're sitting at the cool kids table in, in high school? Aren't these guys rock stars? And, you know, the food media industry went that way of saying, who has the most tattoos? Because that's what we're going to put on the cover of the next thing. And, you know, someone who is probably internally has a reputation as a horrendous, abusive employer. Let's write a story about how they're the bad boy chef. Um, and, and, you know, I, I never did that stuff. I wasn't interested in it, but like that was kind of the bubble that I, I was in and looking for some different path. And when I finally sort of written enough stories about a variety of real problems within the restaurant sphere enough that I was like, I need to write a book because I can't like thousand word stories don't contain this, you know? And the more I thought about it, I went back to that original person who said, chefs, the new rock stars. I thought rock stars aren't good employers. <laughs> and they, they maybe I reached, I actually called my aunt because she was, she was married to, um, a member of the band and she did like road work for Aerosmith and uh, Ringo Starr and, and a bunch of other people. And I, I called her, I was like, Arlie, are rock stars good employers? <laughs> and she's like, you know, it's, it's, it's look, every, every industry, everybody's different, but like, yeah, there are people. And she listed somebody I'm not even named, not even trying not to name drop. I don't remember the name, but she was like, so-and-so was like, so good. would come around would absolutely make sure that like, people roadies were seeing a dentist and other people were like, no, my hat rides first class. You go sit in the back, but in general, no, they don't have a reputation for like worrying about the savings and the mental health uh, of their staff. And, you know, when you take a look at the, not to jump right ahead to the end of our story, but when you take a look at the labor shortage that not only beset, you know, the industry, but befuddled economists and analysts to say, how could this have happened? When you look at the connection between those two and you form a line, you go, okay, so of course this is what happened to staffing issues, right? And starting despite the conversation that happened in the spring of 2021 about where all the cooks, where all the employees of restaurants, you know, I started having chefs say to me, where are all the cooks in 2015? You know, this is, this was an issue a long time in college. I don't yes. know if this is a segment we could get into, but I got, I got a hot take on that. You ready for my hot take there? Uh, I mean, go for it. I can bring us back to where we were. I have a mental spot to where, to where we stemmed off. You go for it. Notes. Here's, yeah. my, here's my pitch on that. Because here's what happened. What I saw happening is right around the time we had the chefs, the new rock stars, we also had, very shortly after that, global recession, right? And all of a sudden, the bottom fell out of so time stamp this chefs of the new rock stars 2005 2006 ish 2005 to 2007 yeah. right yeah exactly um 2008 2009 2010 global recession you know people who were just graduating with financial degrees are now walking dogs for a living and chefs who were like you know i'm cdc at this fancy restaurant and they're talking about making me partner next year or they're going to open up another 200 seat restaurant. I'm going to be the executive chef of, you know, they're like, well, that's not happening because we don't have customers anymore. So I'm going to go open my 40 seat restaurant, serve what I want, play hip hop loud until 2 a.m. Right. So that begat the, the era of the sort of nose to tail, small 
loud restaurant, which, you know, was a golden age. Kind of sucking out the pretension of the industry and just doing food a little bit in my own, marching to my own beat. You were kind of seeing people being true to themselves. Well, that was part of it because they didn't have, you know, investors who had sunk in, you know, $1.5 million and were making demands. They were like, I'm going to do the way I want. It's me and my friend that started this with 50 grand and they were having fun. But I think the misconception or at least the, I think what was misrepresented was, you know, what part of the secret sauce there was, you know, doing away with tablecloths and fancy rooms. What was, was what was able for those chefs to present sort of really great food at a more approachable price point in that era. But the real secret ingredient was bringing the labor standards of high-end dining into the mid range of dining and saying, I'm going to pay a day rate or, you know, whatever your mechanism for wage theft is, whether you do the day rate and people work for less than minimum wage and you divide it by the 12 to 16 hours a day they work or they, you know, they come in at noon, but they clock in at two, whatever it is, bringing those labor standards in so you can get this incredibly finicky food. And what happened was in the early 2000s, you've got the Food Network, the rise of chefs as a new rock star and enrollment in cooking schools just doubled. Right. So you had so many more acolytes, so many more young people willing to be the foot soldiers of this now expanding industry of 40 and 50 seat restaurants, you know, that were packed, no reservations. Uh, It was a really fun time. But within five years, right, by the time we started hearing we're all cooks, we can't find any cooks, Corey, by 2014, 15, those people had spent five, six, seven years, the industry, and they realized these are not the middle-class jobs we thought these were going to be. These are working-class jobs and not um, uh, a car factory in the 60s unionized working-class, but working-class as in I can't afford to pay rent in the city where I live and work. Yeah. Work-class. And those people's the attrition rate was huge, right? The, the people just started leaving the industry but were not replaced by the same volume of people because, A, the word was out that um, – the, the, there was not gold in the hills. Yeah. And B, there were so many new venues for 22 year olds to pursue their cooking careers. You know, in 25, 2005 to 2010, it was still like, I'm going to go work for this great chef. That's the only path. By 2012, 2014, it was like, I'm going to be the next famous Instagram chef, right? I'm going to use social media to promote, promote myself. Like everyone's individual brand became maybe not more valuable, but a much shorter route to potential success, fame, wealth, whatever it is. And so the, the infantry, right? The recruits, the cadets, they just weren't there anymore. And yet uh, no matter how many times I I wrote about it, uh, it didn't seem like something externally that was taken seriously until all of a sudden, you know, pandemic. And then the story we've all talked about enough times, right? People having a break for the first time in their careers to go, Maybe I don't want to do this. Anymore. I think there's another variable to this too. And something that I was saying a lot and you didn't hear a lot of people echo, but 2017, 2018, 2019, leading into 2020, there were more restaurants than ever before per capita. A lot of this has to do with the fact that retail space wasn't working anymore because mm-hmm. people were buying everything online. So people who own these properties are like, what the hell are we going to put in this space? So they started throwing money at 
restaurant projects just to fill this, this space. And you, you see restaurants opening up all over the place. So I think it's weird because there was a huge staffing shortage before this. It wasn't just like the pandemic happened and all of a sudden, where are all the people? Like we were okay. leading into this. Like there were more restaurant jobs than people who wanted to work in the industry for a little while there, in my opinion. Do you, would you agree or disagree to, to that statement? Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. was it was a huge problem. It got worse and worse. I mean, it's, I started hearing it in 2015 with a chef saying, "Do you know any people?" And me asking, "What do you pay?" You know, less than minimum wage. Oh, do you think that's problem? I don't know why that would have anything to do, Corey, yeah. with the lack of applicants. And it definitely scaled exactly as you say. In <clears throat> in the following years, I would hear more and more people saying, "You know, I I, I post a, a job uh, uh, placement." And I get 20 emails. I contact them all back. Only five of them get back to me. Only two show up for an interview. The one that I hire ghosts me after their first day. Uh, you know, and it just gets worse and worse from there. To well, people you know, going, people, oh. and the, the owner will complain that people don't, employees don't take this, this world or this industry seriously. But on the flip side, like our, our, restaurant owners taking this shit seriously when they are doing the things that you point out in the book, like not paying people what they're like a, a, a livable wage and abuse. Like basically just like modern day, like abuse, like in, in the workplace, like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's on, it's not just one side. It's double sided where there's just unfortunate things happening. What are your thoughts there? So I just got distracted by a mosquito. Got and said, I'm going to get you mosquito. Uh, I think previous to 2020, you know, paying and treating people better was still the third rail of the industry. It was like, you, you know, people would complain to you, I can't find any workers, right? Uh, and you'd suggest, what if you compensated them better? Well, then we'd have to raise prices, and that's unthinkable because my customers would go across the street to the other restaurant where they're, you know, whatever, they're, they're still keeping menu prices low by suppressing wages. Uh, why don't you treat people better? Corey, you're talking great. That's, that's communism. You know, like we, we wouldn't uh, have this amazing food if we didn't drive our people to be the best, you know, they invoke all those Darwinian catchphrases, you know, like the cream rises to the top, you know, and pressure makes diamonds. Right. Um, and the reality is like, no, it leaves you short staff. So what are you going to do about it? And then the reset, the, 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 the pandemic had, uh, going through all the cliches, the pivot, the reset, all, all the things you come out on the other side where people are, you know, shifting back towards full service, dine in. They want to have the staffs. Uh, they're not finding the people. Um, the restaurateurs that I spoke with uh, for the two years that I was working on this book. So I started this book in the fall of 2019, right? I'm, I'm, I'm scheduled for a call with a restaurateur in, in LA on uh, March 16th, 2020. And, you know, she doesn't pick up the phone because it's the like day one of the pandemic. Yeah. She had other things in mind. <laughs> um, yeah. She's calling her lawyer and going like, I have a thousand employees. I'm developing five properties. I'm opening restaurants. Right. So, so everything changes, but eventually, uh, when things got to the point in the spring of 2021, where we're starting to have this conversation about where the workers, you know, economists and, and, and franchise owners are blaming government handouts for making people lazy. You know, nobody wants to work anymore. And this is the time where I reached back to everyone I'd spoken to for the book to say, Hey, 
you know, San Francisco, LA, uh, 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 Boston, Toronto, Vancouver, hey, you are operating without tips or you have profit sharing or you have um, uh, these open book management sessions where you teach your employees uh, every facet of the business. How are you doing with staffing? And, and all of them, all of them say, we're doing great. Yeah. Our whole, our whole goal was to hold on to people yeah. and create better jobs that people wanted to stay in longer. We yeah. didn't make these decisions for how to operate our business out of capriciousness or because we're zealots to some ideology, but because we saw the problems in the last five years and we wanted a sustainable business. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and, and this is and why your so, book struck a vein with me because or struck a chord with me is because of all this shit that you're you're saying right now, ESOPs, uh, co-ops, open book management, profit sharing, changing, flipping the the business model upside down to serve your people first and create a level of equality uh, that makes people feel secure in their, in their job, you know? And like all these things that you're talking about are the things I've been focusing on over the past two years is like trying to show people a different way. And you, you touch on so much of this stuff. I think it's really important, but, but I want to bring the conversation back to you. I think it's like the early 2000s, 2014, 2015, you're reporting. You didn't like what you were seeing and you're just it, like, what was going inside of you? Like, were you just saying there's like, like, what was the feeling you were feeling inside? at this point that made you think I got to start documenting this and redirecting my writing efforts to, sh- to sh- capture what? Uh, it was, I mean, it was a frustration. The, I mean, the first thing that I wrote really seriously about labor was in 2015 and it was a story I pitched in 2008 on my literal first day as a journalist. Uh, I started at the Toronto star. I was hired as a maternity leave fill in, for the restaurant critic and every time I'm talking to an American, they're like, Oh yeah, I'm having a baby in July. So I won't be back at work until September. And I'm like, uh, so I was, when I say maternity leave fill in, I mean, I was a fill in for a year while this unionized employee took a year off and she actually ended up taking longer. She took 18 months. Um, so, you know, you, you need a fill in, uh, yeah, for that. For sure. long. Um, and my first, like after, you know, trying out, getting the job. They called me, you got the job. Congratulations. Look over the contract. It'll start in a couple of weeks. You know, I got a call the next day saying, uh, Amy just went into labor. Can you start right now? And I'm like, what does that mean? They go, you go eat in a restaurant, expensive, right? Can you file a, you know, a review tomorrow? I'm like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> um, but that following week I went into the office for the first time, never, you know, I was a cook, right? I didn't, I don't know how offices work. I don't know where the pencils are. And there was a meeting, like a staff meeting, a story meeting. You'd have it every newspaper, magazine, radio show where they go around who's got ideas and, you know, workshopping them, right? And it gets to me. And I'm like, I don't have anything. So I just say the first thing in my mind, which is the fancier the restaurant, the less cooks are paid. That exact story, right? And at the time, the response I get is, "Mm, I don't think that's true, Corey. You might want to maybe look into that a bit more and some other people, you know, they're all kind of like mid to late fifties boomers. Um, You know, young people need to pay their dues, Corey. I don't think there's a story there. Um, And fair enough. I wasn't really ready to report that story that day anyways. So it was years later after doing a lot of different kind of work that um, I was ready. And I, I, at some point I did a column for a year 
it was my excuse to sort of get my hands dirty and do some cooking again. Where I pitched a column where I would go and work a day a week at a different restaurant, you know, with the idea that like I'll show you how different every kitchen is. You know, every workplace culture is different, and it was also an opportunity for me to surreptitiously interview cooks, like in a way that like every restaurant writer can easily contact the chef and owner of, you know, every fancy, every restaurant, it's specifically every restaurant with a publicist, people with money. It's a little harder to get in touch with, you know, the line cooks, the garmages, the pastry people. Um, but when you're actually doing, you know, a 10 or 12 hour shift in the kitchen, when people go out for a smoke break, they're going to talk to you about how much they make and, you know, it's like a reality. You it's not what you say you are. It's what's literally happening every day. And that's culture. The cult- culture is what's happening in this moment. Not what yeah, you say you, you see it, right? Exactly. Never, never mind what they're going to tell you, what, what you actually see in front of you. Because again, like people are going to be on their best behavior when they know there's a reporter in the kitchen, but it's hard to be on your best behavior all day when you are in a small room and there's orders coming in. Like when you're doing a brunch service, you know, we did a brunch service where the dishwasher didn't show up and I was like, fuck it. I'll wash dishes today. It's fine. You know, cause it's actually a better position in which to watch all of you. Um, while I'm being, you know, soaked in, in Hollandaise, uh, <laughs> steam, but that gave me like the perfect excuse to basically have someone else subsidize this kind of me talking to, to the people actually on the front lines. And then when a, a friend and colleague just started another newspaper, the globe and mail, she reached out and said, I'd love for you to write for me. What would you want to write? And I, I said, the fancier the restaurant, the less cooks are paid. And she was like, I love it. Get started. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so it's a long story to tell, tell you how I went all the way around the block, very slowly to find a parking spot in front of the building that I wanted to be at the beginning. And then, and then when I did that and I did, I probably spent two months writing that story. Cause I was just, I cared about it so much. And once I did it, it was like, we need more of this. Like this is missing from the public conversation. And I was just so much less interested in other kinds of stories. Yeah. So now is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. When we come back, I want to unpackage some of the key things you learned from that first drive by that first pass of this work you were doing. And then what were the big things you discovered there on? Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering. This is because Chow Now helps restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. Here's how it works. Chow Now clients get listed on the free Chow Now marketplace. Once they're there, they can meet new customers and take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site. There is no setup fee or monthly payment. Now, this is what I really love about Chow Now. You get access to valuable customer data, which allows you to personalize the experience and the relationship with your guests. In other words, you own the relationship with your guests, something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And we cannot wrap up this message without telling you about how to level up with Chow Now Direct. Chow Now Direct is Chow Now's comprehensive online ordering and marketing 
package. With Chow Now Direct, you get your own branded ordering app for iPhone or Android, email and print marketing, plus POS integration and much more. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up at www.chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. Find out why past guests like Tender Greens and Kava are using Play IQ for their accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Yes, you heard me right. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there is no credit card check, no minimum balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card easily. And I've got to let you know that with Play IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. That's pretty great. Now, I've told you what's new with Play IQ, but you can't forget about all the other features you get with Play IQ, like bill pay and incredible insights and approval of hierarchies. With bill pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bill, and this is all happening online, so no more paper checks. Play IQ bill pay lets you see what's due when, and you can pay by check, ACH, or Play IQ card. Also, with Play IQ bill pay, you can say goodbye to escrow. That's right, no more flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. We've got to talk about Play IQ insights too, because I mean, insights are so important. There's insights to allow you to compare spend by item, vendor, time, period, and location. Man, I love some insights. You can even set alerts. For example, if a price goes outside your agreed contract terms, boom, you get an alert. And then lastly, there's Play IQ custom approval workflows. Only see the invoices you need to, no more duplications of efforts, and no more hunting down approvers. To learn more, head to www.playiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, save 25% off implementation. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a software platform for restaurant people by restaurant people. To be successful in the modern age, you need to be efficient by streamlining your processes and creating automation. Simply put, Margin Edge means data streamlined and insights automated. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. And who likes data entry? No one. So you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with Margin Edge. They will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail. Don't worry about the integration either because Margin Edge allows you to seamlessly connect your POS and accounting systems and get a daily P&L. On top of all of this, Margin Edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes. Plus, you can compare actual cost versus theoretical cost. Find out why over 3,100 restaurants are thrilled to be using Margin Edge. Head to marginedge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for 30 days. There's no contract. There's no setup fee. Plus, you get free unlimited training and support. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable.
One more time, marginedge.com slash unstoppable. All right, we are back, and you kind of just laid it out for us how you got to this point before writing the book, how you were working in the industry, and you started writing uh, from a restaurant operator worker's perspective, which I don't think there's enough of that out there. All the writing, all the media, all the press associated with the industry is from the outside in. Have you noticed that? The press associated with the industry is from the outside from in. The outside in. And a lot of the media associated with the restaurant industry is for the consumer. So there's there's almost sure. like a dis, a dis, it's like a dehinged sense of reality of what the restaurant industry is. That was always a great frustration for me. And part of my interest in writing a book was, is, you know, I would constantly come up against uh, an editor's mandate about, but, but what does this mean to the diner? You know, like in particular, when I would write about, you know, uh, there aren't enough cooks or I remember, I remember writing a story like 2016, 2017 about how cooks always, we, we work when we're sick, you know, it's like a standard part of the industry or it was, um, you know, unless you come in and you show how your leg is hanging by a stump and the chef decides to send you home, you show up, right. You work, do your shift. So you work with a fever, you work sneezing and um, that's considered a, a virtue. Um, and there was always the question, Oh, that's really fascinating. But this seems very inside Corey. This seems like an industry like story. Keep in mind our readers, this isn't a trade publication. This is for the general audience. What does this mean to diners? And, you know, it's certainly like whatever you're writing, whether it's a screenplay or a podcast or a book, like, you always have to ask, why does this matter to my audience? Um, but I was perpetually frustrated and I was probably quite petulant about it to editors. Like they were probably getting annoyed with me. Like, why does Corey not care about our audience? But I was just getting frustrated at this sense of like, they should care because they're compassionate about the people making their food. Isn't that enough reason? And the answer was, always like, no, Corey, the reason has to be like, how does this affect the price of dinner or, or the, the hygiene of like, it, it has to sort of have uh, a user uh, value to it. Um, and I probably burned some bridges that way. Cause I kind of, in, in my attitude, pissed off some editors and I, and I feel kind of guilty about that, that I didn't better, better manage that. But ultimately the food media culture came around like the the attitude that i had in 2015 is probably what is prevalent now like when i look at at eater and publications that are i think at the forefront of the conversation about food i see so much interest in the lives of the people producing food sociopolitical it's it's i mean we forget that food is life. like it's literally life like food is organic stuff that we're putting into our bodies. It's life. It's what we, we, our lives hinged around food for the longest time until probably recently, right? Where we, we don't understand our privilege today and how much of the process of getting food into our body has been pro, like just streamlined and, and there's system and process to it. We just show up like food just shows up, you know, that never used to be the case. Like we we're almost, there's a, a level of, um, un, un, we're just unhinged from reality of, with the relationship to food. And I think we're also unhinged from the reality as consumers to the relationship of to restaurants because our job as restaurants is to create a, a, a sense of false reality. We're putting on a show for you. Like what you see isn't what's happening. 
And I think people and like that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, but right? even down to the even down to the writing that the the consumer is digesting. Like you're saying, your editors like Corey, you know, like this isn't this truth, this reality that you're reporting. The consumers don't care about that, you know. And like we've almost there's a veil between what's actually happening and what the consumer thinks. But we're we're creating a false sense of reality for them because it's about the experience, you know. So I feel like yeah. be, because of all of that. And this comes full circle because the very end of your book, you talk about if things are going to change, it starts with convincing the consumer and, and educating the consumer to be conscious with their purchasing, to be conscious with where their money goes. But we've been holding all this information from them because is, is there like a, do you see like they're almost like, am I making this up? No, no, there's been some change there. I mean, that's the good news. Definitely. Um, up until the, let's say the pandemic for the sake of argument, you know, I, I was still having this ongoing uh, hard uphill sell pitching anything that was about like the, the problems in the restaurant industry, because 95% of food media decided it needed to be, you know, what's in the author, what's in the chef's fridge, what, where does the chef eat on the day off, you know, propping up these characters, where to eat, what, what's hot, what's new, um, and occasionally, once a year, uh, a, a sort of first-person tell-all from some restaurant insider, right? Like, why my restaurant failed, or a line cooks, you know, horror stories about cooking brunch. But it would always be just a one-off. It would be like, oh, this is juicy enough for one story a year, you know, sometimes anonymous. Um, and it was always hard convincing people, A, that these things were true, uh, B, that they mattered, and see that we should do something about it. Yeah. And then the pandemic happened so, and that the needle started to move right away. For example, you know, I, I probably wrote a half dozen stories about the exploitative nature of the third party delivery tech industry. And they were usually met with a, a sort of mixed reaction of like, Oh my God, that's horrible, but equal amounts. I don't think that's true. You know, if these business, if, if, if delivery models were so bad for restaurants, they wouldn't do it. You know, just kind of willfully blind free market, uh, you know, sort of belief in like, no, Corey, I don't think this is true. This is all conspiracy theory. And then April of 2020, you know, the message from uh, your local, mayor was probably, you know, order from Uber and DoorDash to help restaurants. And the message, I mean, I heard it on podcasts I listened to. I can't remember which companies. I remember hearing some podcasts and the ad break was like, order from whatever third party delivery. So if you love restaurants, order from us to help save restaurants. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this is like, this is the Fox saying like, yeah. Hire me to protect the head house. You're going to get the best ends. <laughs> They're going to be so safe. But by late May, early June of 2020, already the conversation about the predatory nature of those businesses flipped. It became, it bubbled up to the surface. And all of a sudden I started seeing everywhere, not just in food pages and like traditional general interest media would write stories, but actually it doesn't help restaurants when you order from someone who takes 30% commissions off the top. And it became a big national conversation and cities like uh, New York, LA, Denver, 
uh, started proposing and imposing commission caps on these places. And they, you know, I, for me, you know, my town hall, I have a, a daughter who's going to be three in the fall. So my town hall is the playground. That's where I meet the common people, you know, it, by which I mean people I don't know and have casual conversations because our, you know, our kids are both climbing the big rock and we need to make small talk. And I found that when they would say, Oh, you just moved here. What's this? You're working on a book with spec. You know, when I started talking about the delivery companies, they would immediately just jump in with, yeah, I heard those are not good for restaurants, right? The commissions are really high. Whereas just a year earlier, people would have been going, what, really? I don't think that's true. Those things are great. How did we ever get along without them? So some of these conversations do or ghost kitchens, right? My editor was like, what's a ghost kitchen? And now, like, oh, 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 I think that conversation sort of peaked and is going downhill. But at least up until a few months ago, all any, like, producers just constantly wanted to talk about ghost kitchens. So some of these things, and then I guess in the spring of 2021, some of these things due to the actual market forces of the industry uh, engage the public's attention, which is what I wanted to do, and then empathy uh, to the point when the book came out, you know, the things I was just getting people to hope would believe were true and then care about, they already had because of the horrendous conditions of the pandemic. Well, the pandemic absolutely exposed a lot of these things. And it also gave restaurant tours and restaurant operators a chance to slow down to say, this is what's happening. I think we, we work so hard in this industry. Our heads are always down. We're just do work, do work, do work. And a lot of the work is dependent on the human variable, creativity, uh, human interaction. So we can't streamline and automate and put technology into everything that we do because there's that human element involved. So I think because of this, like the restaurant industry has kind of just been head down doing work and people, other industries have come in and imposed themselves on our industry. And we're kind of just like, oh, a third party delivery option. Okay. We have to do that because we have, if we don't do that, then it's out of, it's almost a, re, a fear-based reaction. Like I better do this because if I don't, then my competitor will do it, but we've never kind of worked from the inside out. It's always been from the outside in other industries kind of working on our industry. Does that make sense? Do you agree? Well, it's hard to, it's hard to work at a collective um, holistic fashion when you're so fractured, right? I mean, the reason that the, the delivery industry has been slow or at the very least was not able to eat the lunch of the grocery industry, which they very much like to like, it just makes sense. Right. But why hasn't grocery, even though there's been a huge uptick in online sales and delivery during the pandemic, but why wasn't the grocery industry disrupted the same way the restaurant industry was? It's not because the interest or demand isn't there. People would love to get there. To, people throughout history, yes, there's people like me who got married in a supermarket who love going and physically picking food, but there's just as many people who don't. The reason it wasn't is because there's three companies who control the majority of the market share, right? It's like it's, it's, it's Kroger, uh, Walmart, and Albertsons. I can't remember from the States. In Canada, it's, it's Loblaws, Sobeys, and Metro. But either way, because the control of the industry is centralized, they weren't going to have some tech companies swoop in and steal their customers yeah. from them. Yeah. Whereas uh, in the restaurant industry, there's a hundred thousand operators, right? Yeah. So it's, 
so difficult but for I think them to classify. Yeah, I think there's something. I think there's some good in diversity. I think it's good to be fragmented. I think it's good to spread things out. I don't think that's. But there are neg- like like anything. There's pros and cons, right? And the, one of the cons is when you're so fragmented and everybody's in their own little bubble, it's much easier to impose like for other industries to come in and impose their will on us. Right. And what we're doing is what you're pointing. That's what happens. Yeah. Uh, So taking a step back real quick, you, you, you start writing, uh, you start realizing your, your, your heart is drawn to these, these subjects that are more focused on the people working in the industry and how it affects people working in the industry, not so much the consumer. Uh, this is what you're really interested in. When does the idea for the book come? Was this before the, the pandemic or after the pandemic? Before uh, I, I would, um, you know, like I said, I would continually run up against the, the margins of the newspaper magazine, online story, you know, the a thousand 1500 word story that is, you know, it's limited and, and you want to like, be able to follow up with people. Hey, remember when we talked about uh, you were going to transition your kitchen to a four day work week? Like that was fascinating. Six months later, I want to get back to you and I'm going to have another conversation about that. And I think that's worth another story, but to the newspaper editor, they're like, you already did that story six months ago. Why, why do we care about a follow up? I'm like, no, because they are sticking their neck out to be progressive in the industry. And I want to see what we've learned from them. And, and what can be applied somewhere else? And so I was just, I was just running up against the limitations of the format that I was working in. And a book was a larger canvas, right? When you can have an interview and six months later follow up and go, great, now this yeah. chapter has an ending. And you can drill uh, down and follow, like you say, follow up, get to the truth of it, get to the core of it. And I, I love that approach. So you, you write this book, you break it down into almost like segments uh, of the different verticals within the industry. You have the vertical or sorry, the virtual restaurant, the, the chef driven restaurant, the Insta bait meal, the, the immigrant restaurant, the fast food restaurant, uh, the chain restaurant, the, the grocer and the uh, virtuous restaurant. Those are the chapters, the eight chapters mm-hmm. in this book. Reflecting back, I mean, you you point out a lot of, um, I guess, uh, weak spots in our industry, things, issues with our industry within each of these verticals. If you could take a step back, Corey, mm-hmm. and look at five issues you want to bring to the surface of today's conversation that come from the book. What are those? Can you ramble off just five top of mind things that you feel are most important that we communicate today? Well, it's probably the order of the chapters, uh, writ large. And, you know, I did put the, the delivery stuff first because it felt like the most timely and the part that was always changing the most. Um, I, I think, Legislating commission caps or rating in regulating somehow these companies um, is huge. And by that, I don't just mean commission caps, but getting ahead of the campaign strategy of Uber and DoorDash and all these companies and their victory in California with Prop 22, which to your listeners, quick recap, you know, California passed a law that says contract workers are employees. You've got to pay them benefits and treat them as such. The big company spent $200 million on a ballot initiative and ultimately overturned that and then said, oh, we could do this everywhere, baby. <laughs> and uh, they, they've already gotten started. I think in Canada, Uber calls it Flexible Work Plus, which is the name of their, their campaign. But uh, yeah, like issue number one is on a city and state level provinces, which we call them in Canada, um, 
getting ahead of that by having elected officials who are maybe living in the 21st century and know how technology works and don't fall for the flim flam of these companies telling it what people want today is flexibility. No, people want security. Um, that's a huge conflict. I think the culture of restaurants, you know, putting aside, you know, I think the more um, measurable issue of wages and how people are compensated, which is huge. Um, tipping, which is a huge issue, just the actual culture and what's expected, as you say, the sort of perpetuation of the, that cycle of abuse, you know, my chef, you know, made us great cooks by treating us like this. So that's how I'm going to be a chef. Like that's classic, you know, I'm going to abuse my kid because my dad, that's how my dad did. Yeah. Um, I, I plan on drilling down into each of these things that you, you, you drop on us. So we're going to talk a little bit about legislation and elected officials having a big part in this, uh, the issue with how people are compensated in the industry and in, in the tipping, getting rid of tipping. What are the other big hotspots that in I'm your research? I'm, I'm, not going, I'm not going fast enough in my bullet points. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, at a local level incentivizing immigrant owned businesses, food businesses, um, zoning with consideration for the market saturation of chain restaurants, which will continue unabated unless we do something actively about it. And then the individual action that we can take as diners, which you know, as you point out, it segmented the book, and I have to give credit to uh, uh, Lynn Johnston, my editor. That was her idea. After I, in a in a phone call with her, gave her like a ninety minute rant about all these issues. You know that I sounded like a conspiracy theorist, and at some point she asked me a question, and I said, "Well, you know, on a socioeconomic level, like the family-run immigrant restaurant restaurant runs very different from big urban chef-driven restaurant, which is very different from the ghost kitchen. She was like, these are your chapters. Write out a list of the different restaurant models, and if they operate so differently, write me that list, and then what are the issues that each one has, even if those issues overlap, which many of them do, these this is the way to divide the book. So I have to give her credit for that. And within that, every chapter you know needed to have some takeaway. What can we as diners about this and in some chapters it's very active and some chapters is more about like hey we learned something let's just try to be empathetic yeah yeah but i love this idea and i agree with you and the last question i ask all my guests on the show is is not the last question on the show but before we go to the speed round is the mission statement is to inspire empower and, tra- and transform the industry we talk about how have you transformed personally and how do we need to transform the industry and what are you doing to be a part of that transformation and almost everything that is an issue within the industry stems back to the consumer and us being such a reactive industry reacting to the consumer, but the consumer doesn't have a, they almost have a false sense of reality, but we've also created that false sense of reality, you know? So it's, it's a weird, it's, and I, and I think what you, you're seeing and what you come back. So the reason why I'm saying this is because you say at the, at the end of every chapter, it's about telling the consumer what they can do. And I think that we as a restaurant industry need to start becoming aligned with what the message to the consumer is to turn our industry around. Because if we look at the history of restaurant people going all the way back to like the 1700s, 
we have always been influencers. We were restaurants have always been at the center of community and the center of change and progression. We are more fragmented now than ever because there's so many restaurants where there maybe like a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, there'd be like one community house, one uh, public house where everything would happen and they would disseminate all the, mis- the information. But we have to find some way to get back together and say this as a collective industry needs to be the message and we need to be delivering this message message together and influencing people for social political change, for the, just the change for what we're putting into our bodies as far as health and the health of our employees. And like you said, they just want to feel secure. Like this needs to be at the, the leading edge of the message we're sending. But how do we do that? I'll give you another um, maxim here that came from a boss I had who was a terrible boss who once gave me a great piece of advice that is so broadly applicable, which is never assume that your audience appreciates the value of what you're doing. If you don't explain it to them. Um, And at the time this was a, a restaurant owner who had heard that I was thinking about opening my own deli. And he was like asking me what kind of meat I was going to use and how much it was going to cost and what my, price point was. And he was like, so that was where he was coming from, but it's widely applicable. And we've come to a crossroads in the history of the restaurant where that needs to be part of the conversation, because as much as it was a third rail before the pandemic, the idea of, I'd love to pay my cooks more, but I'd have to charge more. I'd love to use better product, but I have to charge more. Everyone is in the same boat now, more or less, you know, there, it's no longer the race to the bottom because whether it's about increasing wages to hire, to, to attract talent, to even get people in the door for an interview because there's a, a dearth of applicants or restaurateurs who want to be doing better. There's so much, so many restaurateurs who are for a long time have said, I, I want to do better. I, I want to provide a better life for my people. I want to have, dental benefits, whatever the thing is, and they're realizing now's the time. Um, Or the just simple global market realities of inflation, you know, the 43% rise in the cost of deep fryer oil, whatever the the reality, costs are rising. It's unavoidable. Nobody is able to keep costs down, so menu prices have to rise. Well, ironically, like over the, the past 40 years, 50 years, as inflation's been happening, food overall has relative to total income. People spend less of their total income on food than ever before until recently. Like there was like a, a period where just like people, we got so good at centralizing and streamlining and, and making shit food that was cheap in North America. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So all over the rest of the year, people all over the rest of the world, people spend more of their income on food. And they, you know, in many of those places, they eat better food, right? Exactly. Like whether it's, uh, you know, at the farm gate or at the restaurant, there are mechanisms that we don't see because they're hidden from us that keep the prices down, right? Whether it is subsidies for farmers growing corn and soy or legally lower wages for tipped workers. So the consumer ends up subsidizing the wage of those employees. All of it helps keep the perception of cost down. But for a variety of issues, the price is going up. And if the price of the brick is going up, it's got to be, the trickle down has to be felt all over. And so everyone is in the position where 
you know, whether you're selling hot dogs or steaks, you have to raise menu prices and you have to help your customers understand. I mean, at a certain level, you know, at the fast food level, there is, you know, a 30% rise in price is still going to be, you know, 75 cents on some dishes. And I think that industry is looking at automation and labor as a solution to, to a lot of their costs. And at the high end level, you go, you know, dear rich people, price just went from 300 to 400. And there may be a few articles about it, but ultimately their audience is going to get with it. It's in that mid range that it's a much bigger challenge to communicate it. Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Can we well, take you're a talking pause? about, uh, you know, how we have to increase cost of food. Generally speaking, we just have to increase the cost of food or charge more for the food. Is that what you were saying? Right. So it's a need. Sorry, I, I remembered where to pick it up. I don't know if you edited it all. <laughs> I should have Barely. Top. Maybe we'll take it. Barely. Up. I don't care. If I sound stupid. No, I, don't, I remembered what I wanted to say because this boils down to another reason why I wrote the book, which is restaurants are not a monolith. You can't write about restaurants do this or restaurants do that. Cause always the one about reader who goes, well, I know a restaurant does it different. You go, well, that's a very different model of restaurant. So, you know, you've got like at the, at the low end fast food automation is a solution at the high end, your customers can afford more in the mid range. It's a bigger challenge in the, in the, uh, uh, in the chain area. You know, what I've seen at least so far is, we have to increase menu prices, but we're going to hide it as best we can, right? We don't want to have that conversation with customers. So it's, <clears throat> it's we're going to increase prices 6% this year, 8% next year, but we're going to keep prices flat on our breakfast special, our lunch special, our lobster week special. Uh, and, I, and I looked at a few chains doing exactly that, you know, and that's their best practice, right? Because people come for a perception of value and they need to keep selling that value, even though they have to increase costs. And, the, the, you know, the, the mid-range full service independent restaurant doesn't do the same volume, so they can't operate like that. They've got to increase those prices across the board and they have to engage the understanding of their audiences. You know, that's, that's how it has to be. The question is really just do people eat out less um, and how does that affect revenue overall? But there's no avoiding the rising of prices. And, you know, we like the, the most recent example is early 2000s, you saw this huge farm to table movement that um, really spread across independent restaurants in North America. And, did restaurants say, you know, I'm, I'm, I really believe in this. I'm going to start getting my pork from this local farm and my eggs from this local farm, and it's going to cost more, but I'll just eat the cost. Or did they say, no, this is going to be part of a public conversation I have with my diners. You know, we had that era of everybody started putting the name of the farm on the menu. I remember going to restaurants at the time. They, the first time I saw, like, on the back of the menu, it was like a whole page, you know, this our trout comes from this farm. Here's the name of the person who makes our, our bacon. And, you know, and in time that kind of scaled back to like, let's just maybe shout out the name of the purveyor. We don't need the whole biography, but there was an understanding that if we're going to make this investment, 
we need buy-in from the customers. People so don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And that's kind of this whole idea of this, the conscious capitalism of saying, hey, like we aren't doing this because we want to get rich and you know rake you over the coals. We're doing this because we're actually still making the same profit, but this is what the cost of doing sustainable food, what you're asking for costs. We can't maintain the same level of prices and give you higher quality. That's not how the equation works. And we're... we're Here's one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately. I don't think the consumer gives a fuck until it matters to them, until what we're doing affects their livelihood and well-being. And that's only when you start really seeing people make changes is when they realize that what's best for us is also best for you. When you pay a little extra to get food that makes you feel better because it's 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 not pumped with GMOs or also, oh, okay, guess what? Like if we buy food that is grown ethically, it's better for the environment, it's better for the ecosystem, and we're now proving that food that's grown from a healthy healthy ecosystem is actually healthier for you as well. Like we're getting, like like you said earlier with your reporting, we're starting to drill down and say, well, what next? Well, what next? And all these what nexts are important to the consumer, and we have to communicate that to them because until it affects them in their livelihood, they're just not going to give a fuck. Well, self-interest is a powerful incentive yeah. to anyone, right? Yeah. I mean, it's how, you know, you, you know, I, I don't care about my body until I look in the mirror. I'm like, Oh, now I'm involved in this conversation. That's, somebody else ate all those donuts, but it's, <laughs> it's an ongoing conversation. And like you say, the what's next is the what's next is the thing that makes owners fearful because they, you know, they're nervous about, well, if I tell people to care about this because I care about this, then I'm opening myself up to criticism for all the things I'm not doing yet. Uh, but that's what I mean by you have to start somewhere, right? Like, and you can't do it because you're expecting applause from your audience. And often the conversation is difficult. You know, I did, somebody reached out to me. They wanted to get rid of tipping and I worked with them on a consulting basis. They knew I'd written a lot about tipping and we did this back. And I think January is just sort of the strategy and the messaging, and you know, talking with other operators who have done this, um, which, you know, I'm firmly anti-tipping, but not everybody has to do this. Um, but, you know, they, they wanted to go this route and they're just starting to roll it out now. And they're starting to get that conversation and it's energizing them because, you know, the logistics are complicated, but the real work is in having these face-to-face conversations with all their diamonds, right? It's the one-on-one because most people haven't just read a 10,000-word essay about the history of tipping and how it works and what's unfair about it. And what, get into that real quick because that's one. So you listed other things you listed. You said uh, things have to change from the a legislative a legislative position from the top elected officials, basically from the top down, how people are compensated, which you're about to get into, AKA tipping uh, local level incentivizing of immigrant businesses, uh, zoning concentration of franchises and corporate restaurants is the other thing we still have to talk about. I think we were tightening fast. What's that? You were a good note taper, man. Mid interview to refer back to those notes. <laughs> yeah. And then we also want to talk about we kind of talked enough about educating the 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 community, right? It really starts with educating the community in open book management to the world, not just your employees. Really showing people what it takes to run a six uh, of financially fiscal healthy business. And it, as long so- as we're looking at notes, I made a note while we were talking about open book management, profit sharing. You said ESOB, and I didn't know what that meant. Employee and I wrote that down. Stock- owner, sorry, um, employee, 
the employee stock ownership. I think I'm ah. missing the P. I don't know what the last one, but it, I did a whole um, check out Corey uh, Rosen. Yeah, I, I had written down Esau, which is a Filipino grilled intestine dish. Um, I didn't think that was what you were talking about, but so it's uh, episode eight hundred and forty-five. Corey Rosen joined us, and uh, ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership, I think, Program. And uh, if you listen to episode eight hundred and forty-five, Corey Rosen, the founder of National Center for Employee Ownership, gets deep into that. He actually just connected me with uh, Annabelle. I think maybe it might be her name. She is going to go deep into co-ops real quick about the significance of of co-ops. The issue with ESOPs awesome. is that. They cost like over a hundred thousand dollars worth of legal fees just to get started. So it's out of reach for most small business owners. Right. Yeah, unfortunately. There needs to be a nonprofit that administers that. Either way, that's a that's a digression. Yeah. Uh, you want to pick it back up where, yeah. where you were. So you started getting into, um, we, I think we can wrap up the idea of educating the consumer. Maybe we'll put a period on that towards the end just to remind people how important that is. Um, and you started getting into how we need to change how we're compensating people and getting rid of the tipping model. So I asked you about what's wrong with tipping. Like what's, what's the history of tipping that most people don't realize? Uh, I mean, the quick history of tipping is it was a culture Europe that was borrowed and really adopted heavily in North America after the civil war, when uh, a lot of employers who previously hadn't had to pay people anything because they were enslaved, um, use this mechanism as a way of saying, okay, specifically porters on trains and uh, uh, kitchen, uh, kitchen staff and servers in restaurants and pubs, what if instead of paying them, the customer gave them gifts afterwards? What a cool idea. And in time, this evolved and, and was codified into law. I can't remember the name of the law. They're, they're in the books. But basically in the 1930s, it was enacted into a labor law that basically says uh, there's a lower wage that you can pay for people who are in tipped positions because the customer subsidizes their wage. And this has been, you know, amended all sorts of ways over the last century. You've got the tip credit in the United States, which is a complicated scheme where like, well, the employer is obligated to top up to minimum wage. If the, if tips don't come out to at least minimum wage, uh, and at least according to uh, Saro J. Ehrman of the uh, No Fair Wage, there's, or sorry, is that the name of the organization? No Fair Wage? That doesn't sound right. One Fair Wage. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, there are plenty of legal loopholes and there's constant wage theft in this. That's, that's the basic history. What it's led to is a situation where um, servers are exposed uh, to all kinds of abuse, um, from customers and from employers uh, that is both gendered and racial um, because they, you know, they, they aren't, they don't show up for work with a promise of, of here's how much you're going to make every hour. It's, you can make potentially a lot of money if you don't object to the way people treat you. And so there's a lot of abuse that comes their way. And then meanwhile, particularly in when we get to the fancier restaurants, servers often make twice what cooks make um, and, you know, internally, of course, workers are always at each other's throats. Internally, you've got this debate among servers and cooks about, like, who works harder, you know, and it's a total 
sideshow from the actual issue of like, why are we all compensated fairly? Or isn't there enough money in this pool for all of us? I mean, I didn't realize that until I was a cook in a, in a high-end restaurant and there was a server, junior server in the kitchen counting, you know, flipping bills over in his fingers uh, at the end of the night. And another more senior server came in and he said, we don't count money in the kitchen, really admonishing him. And I asked him why, because I thought it was a hygiene issue. And he said, he said, like very thoughtfully, he said, we know we make more money than you. We don't have to rub it in. Uh, and that was when I was where, oh, so everyone understands that this is like a totally unfair, fucked up system. We're just like, just don't talk about it. Sorry, I interrupted. No, go keep going. Keep finish your thought. Well, I mean, and, and that's what uh, that's what obstructs and creates the third big problem of tipping, which is getting two groups of workers to be a team, you know, and any, whether you're in an office or a it kitchen, creates a divide for sure. You want your workforce to be a team. You can bullshit and say it's a family, but ultimately you want people to work effectively together. And if you compensate people very differently, they, th- this resentment is always going to prevent them from actually being a team. Yeah. And so in your research of, you know, following up, drilling down, drilling down, what's the solution to eliminating the tipping culture of the restaurant industry? So I don't think on a large scale, we're going to eliminate the tipping culture. I mean, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's anything that becomes part of your culture for generations. It's pretty hard to get rid of. It's possible, i.e. smoking, um, when you can demonstrate, I don't know, with smoking, you know, like the actual, physical danger of the thing, although you could argue the same is true of guns, and that certainly hasn't shifted the needle there. And I do not want to get sidetracked by talking about guns. But that is to say, it's such an ingrained part of our culture. And much like whether it's guns or abortion or Israel, like people are passionate about it, but often with very little experience or information backing up that passion. For example, I can't tell you how often diners will respond to a story I've written by telling me, that, you know, tips are a way of them rewarding. Like it's a positive thing. That's a way of them telling someone they've done a good job or even that the word tips is an acronym for to ensure prompt service. And people say this with a straight face, like they actually believe that someone wrote this acronym. And so, no, this is the system by which we enforce that. Um, it's it's gobbledygook. Um, you know, we don't, how much do you tip your dentist? How much do you tip your electrician? But, or do you expect them to do a really good job because you pay them what they expect to be paid? So even if we include a service charge, because we're offering a service, it should be paid, it should be charged, it should be included. There's nothing stopping people from leaving a tip if somebody goes above and beyond the expectation. Like we well, There's no law anywhere from stopping you leave a tip. And sir, I realize I sidetracked myself. You're actually talking about solutions and I'm still listing problems. Uh, yes, there's, there's, so the, the handful of operators who have said, I'm going to eliminate tipping, it's always, it's always a, a sort of a combat with diners and with the general public because people who have never even eaten there will pile on them to go, I'll never go to this place. They're communists. Um, but people do it, and ultimately they have to raise prices to pay people fairly because that 20% that was coming in the form of tips, that's revenue. You can call it something else, and the IRS can call it something else, but ultimately that's, you know, that $10 sandwich plus a $2 tip is like, it's a $12 sandwich. The way you divide up 
uh, the revenue to compensate your staff is more up to you once you incorporate the actual price into the menu, which is different depending on where you are, uh, by which I mean in New York City, I'm not even sure if it's city or state, you can't do a service charge. It's not legal, right? Um, there's a number of restaurants who have eliminated tips uh, on, on the West Coast, and a much more common theme with them is introducing a 20% service charge across the board. So your menu price can still say, you know, $10 and then it's going to be $12 and we divide up the money how we see fit. Whereas in New York, a uh, place like Dirt Candy doesn't have a choice. They can't tack 20% onto the menu. Uh, but what's stopping a restaurant from just saying, this is the profit we want to make. We, we are a restaurant that wants to be able to pay our employees this and earn this profit and then reverse engineer what it's going to cost to do that. And who the fuck is anybody to say that you can't charge what you want to charge for a service that you offer, even if it's more expensive than everybody else. It's really just a matter of perception. And when you talk about, or when I talk about um, market price, you know, market price is a nonsense made up number, but it is a reflection of what people perceive as the value of something. And usually perception of value compares comes from comparison to other things, right? Like a half pound of brisket, you know, is kind of becomes a commodity at a certain point. You expect to pay 18 to 30 to maybe $40, depending on, well, down American and U.S. dollars. But like you expect to pay a certain price point when that jumps up. That could be the reason for it. But all that's like, ultimately you put that to diners. The challenge is, unpacking that for them. I'll give you an example. This is a preview. Um, uh, I do this recurring feature for Eater where I break down the unit cost of everything in a restaurant dish um, called cooking by the numbers. And so I'll take a dish and say how much mustard, how much pork shoulder, you know, the price of everything, but also include rent and wages and insurance and, uh, and, and everything to really the goal is like, to get the diners empathy, to get them to go, oh, wow, I never thought of that, right? Because the average person who's ever worked in a restaurant is fond of going, I know how much chicken costs at the supermarket. Therefore, I know how much this costs to make you. Nobody thinks, I know how much a square foot of commercial real estate goes for yeah. in my city. And when I divide that by the square footage of this restaurant, and then I figure out insurance and maintenance and staffing, you know, whether you had to send people home early on Monday night because it was empty, like, Nobody thinks about that stuff. So the, Including the most people who them. open restaurants. <laughs> yes, exactly. Go, oh, and, and, <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing restaurateurs love to complain about too. And, and they're right to complain about it, which is that like my staff doesn't know this stuff, yeah. which I'll, I'll, except for the owners who do operate that kind of open book management where the, the whole point is to get people to understand that. And then they become better employees. It's- my my it's almost opposite of the way like earlier we were talking about how it's, it's the role of the restaurant to create the illusion of seamlessness and convenience and service. And just, and the whole thing is like, it's like a duck on water. Like you see the duck who's just kind of streaming along. Everything's so perfect and easy going. And then underwater, those feet are going like crazy. The illusion has come around to the duck has bitten us in the butt, right? Because as, as you say, we've created the, the illusion, the sort of stage show version of the experience and try to hide the puppeteers beneath, right? So when the puppeteer gets sick, 
people have no empathy. They're like, where's Big Bird? You know, where's Elmo? How dare you? I want my money back. And the reality is, no, there's a lot of stuff you're not seeing underneath the water. And so, I mean, that's been like my job for the last six or seven years, get people to see the strings behind the scene. So, oh, you know, this, I think it'll be coming out this week. The latest edition of this column is, is a restaurant called Parachute in Chicago. And uh, husband and wife team who own the place, and I spoke many times with uh, Beverly Kim. I didn't speak with her husband. Um, and they have a second restaurant, and basically they decided to eliminate tipping over the course of the last couple of years, or rather, in their words, um, shift away from tipping. You know, their language is like, we're going to be paying, I can't remember how much it is, but like they're paying 20 plus something dollars an hour uh, to their staff, so they're not dependent on tips and having to increase menu prices accordingly. Um, but there's a popular dish, the dish of feature in this column is called the Bing bread, which is this uh, Asian bread that's stuffed with bacon and onions and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's incredibly labor intensive. And ultimately, pre-pandemic, they were charging $15 for it. And it yielded something like 4.5% profit margin compared with the overall 10% goal of the, the restaurant. I think 10% were, though. I think people should be aiming for 15% minimum personally. Why not? Ideally, yes. 10% is not a super uh, profitable, uh, sustainable business, but I mean, amongst independents, that's considered quite good, right? Well, that's part of the issue is the perception of, of value. It's like we, and we do it to ourselves because for some reason we accepted that 10% is good. It's not, you know, well, it all I mean? comes back to the, this issue of, not feeling restaurateurs feeling like they are unable to charge what their product is worth in order to compensate everyone fairly and earn a good living. Yeah. Like the, the, the public is unwilling. They perceive to pay that price. Exactly. Which I think is the, the big message from your book and what you're getting into now is that this, the the open book management doesn't stop with your team. We need to carry that through to our communities and explain to people that this responsibility that we have to nourish them and to feed them comes at a cost. And if we want to do it ethically, if we want to do it sustainably, if we want to do it in a way that's best for you and for our community and for our employees, that it's going to have to cost something. And I think we should be standing on a rooftop screaming that as loud as possible, but not just to the consumer with each other. If we see somebody in our community charging not a lot of money, we should be like, Hey man, how's it going? Are things tough? Let me help lift you up a little bit. Let me like, how are you running your books? Why are you charging so little? Like profit first is a great book. And it kind of gets into the, the, the details of this idea that like, we need to take our profit and we need to educate people on how to do that. You know? Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to take the, the, the talking stick away from you. Uh, yeah, I'm just making a note to read Profit first. Oh, after great book. Michael biography. Yeah, man. It's great stuff. I'm, uh, if you want to talk more about that off air, I'm happy to do that. You mentioned two other things that we haven't – actually, three other things we really haven't gotten much into, and we have about 14 minutes left together. Uh, Local-level um, incentivizing of immigrant businesses. Just – Real quick, a few like a paragraph or two on what we can do to to improve that vertical. Yeah, and that's a harder thing for the average person to get involved in. Uh, I, I, curiously or ironically enough, I, I have become. Um, I mean, that comes from 
this great example in the book of La Cocina, this organization in San Francisco that effectively started in 2005 as a, a shared kitchen business incubator for entrepreneurs uh, who are who they found were obstructed from starting their own food businesses, primarily women and immigrants. And it's grown. And as it's grown, it's also grown into a food hall. So there's now like a space for these people to move into. And the whole thing is about like creating exit opportunities, creating entrepreneurial economic opportunities uh, for people. And they have so many success stories. And, you know, as, as I ask in the book, why can't every city have an organization like this? And uh, the short answer is, is just will, right? You need to have people who care in the in this, in that story. It's about grassroots organizations starting small and growing into something big. And along the way, getting buy-in from other organizations who say your interests are aligned, your interests are aligned with us. Let's work together. Um, There's some overlap with similar organizations, Denver, uh, New Haven in New York. And I just started working on a project for a place here in Winnipeg, uh, which is a public space. Uh, this effectively, long story short, a food hall is part of it, and there's some dormant spaces. And the new CEO read my book, and I think read that line and said, "Yeah, why can't we have this here, Corey? Why don't you help me do this?" Um, really, the biggest obstacle they started with in San Francisco was kitchen space. Right? They were like, "Kitchens are the obstacle for people." Uh, there are so many. I was talking to Shepard about this the other day. Wherever you are, maybe not wherever you are, maybe not in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., but a lot of cities have a lot of non-activated kitchen spaces. There's a lot of hotels with a 3,000-foot kitchen in their basement. Even more right now with all the shutdowns. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So I don't think real estate is still the biggest obstacle. It's about connecting that sort of um, immigrant business, small business starting uh, nonprofit in your city with uh, a, a chef mentor who really cares with, you know, two or three other shareholders who, who can get involved to say, what if we could combine these things with, you know, someone who's going to pop up, someone who's going to marketing, but it takes some willpower to get that happen. And ultimately to, at some point, get someone uh, on a city council level who goes, yeah, we should be giving a tax break to this thing. This is something that you know, I don't remember the stats from the book, but it's something like 14% of every business in America is started by an immigrant. And in restaurants, it's 25%. I may be getting my numbers a little wrong, but that's the meat of it. And that tells you how incredible, like, how are we not taking oper- taking advantage, particularly in big cities that have big, diverse populations? Well, how are we not, like, encouraging that? Yeah, you point out in the book, too, on this, this topic of immigrant restaurants that, there seems to be a perception that immigrant food should be less, shouldn't, shouldn't cost as much. It should be cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that kind of stems back to what we were saying before with just restaurant owners not knowing their own value and not charging? Like, is it? Do you think immigrants come here and they feel like they have to give it away to, just to get noticed, to, to get customers? Yeah, I mean, I probably should probably not speak for all immigrants everywhere, but in my experience. This is a huge part of the conversation. It probably circles back around the same issue of engaging with the audience, uh, holding people's hands to help them understand things, particularly when it's about challenging long-held perceptions. And there's a pretty well-documented racial bias in restaurant menu pricing, right? Um, It's directly tied to the socioeconomic 
economic status perceived of that culture. And, you know, um, for, for example, you can get away with charging um, $35 for a plate of pasta, handmade noodles at Babo, you know, an Italian restaurant. But uh, as, as Beverly Kim put it to me when we were talking about this article, there's a bamboo ceiling for the price of uh, noodles made if you are from China, Korea, Cambodia, where, wherever, right? Um, and it's a huge challenge that, like, you know, when this comes up with every, like, non-European descending restaurateur, they just kind of go, yeah, we know this. We've been saying this for as long as I've been in the industry. Um, there's starting to be some change there. But again, it needs to be part of the conversation. It needs to be. And, and you're seeing, I think, a younger generation who's doing more sort of non-traditional stuff with their pop-ups and their, you know, I'm going to do this like Filipino tacos or whatever it is, mashing up of cultures. But I got to pay everybody like $22 an hour. Yeah. And I'm not going to use like, you know, sl- slave beef. Um, I'm going to use like some good ingredients. So like it's going to. I have, to, I have to charge people what my food is worth. So you're starting to see, I think, a bit of a challenge to that. But that's a deep ingrained bias that certain foods be less expensive. And it was absolutely hand in hand. The food media industry had a huge part in uh, uh, in promoting that bias through the you know the two the segregated list. The you know your city's ten best restaurants and your city's top one hundred cheap eats list. Yeah. Which again. I'm starting like five years ago, I would tell editors who would say, can you, would you like to contribute to our cheap eats list? I'm like, I'd be happy to, if you don't call it that yeah. or, or I'll do it. If you call your other one, your top 10 expensive yeah. restaurants, and they'd be like, Oh, we're going a different way, but let's work on something else. Some other time, Corey, I'm going to shift the conversation. I'm loving the conversation, but I want to just give a line. I want to give a nod to this idea of the zoning concentration of franchise and corporate restaurants and how we can, because this is something that when I first started the podcast, I was very anti big corporation. I was very anti franchise. I thought that it, it was evil, blah, 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 blah. I have to admit after 900 interviews and talking to some of these people, I don't think that it's necessarily evil. I just think that, yeah, yeah I mean, I think there's a lot we can learn from big business, big corporation in, in implementing those business practices on at a small scale. So uh, back to this idea, like you, you talk about zoning in um, basically corporate restaurants, franchises coming into local communities and kind of taking over in the market in lack of, you know, maybe those aren't the words you would use, but just in the sake of getting it out, what can we do? Why do you think that's a bad thing real quick? And keep in mind, we have six minutes. Yeah. Uh, I think taking over is however you want to phrase it, whether it's owning the market or or whatever. Yeah. Ultimately a big box store pushes out independence, right? It just, it, uh, gathers up all the customers, uh, gives them excuse to go to this one business. So, you know, a neighborhood that might've had three hardware stores now has a home hardware, uh, that's a five minute drive away. So, you know, within five years, there's no more small hardware stores. So why is that bad? Why is that bad? It limits the entrepreneurial opportunity, you know, like, isn't the American dream, the idea that anyone can start a business. You can't, if you drive down your main street and every strip mall is, is two or three giant anchor tenants that are national or transnational chains. And then a few, you know, nail salons uh, and, and cell phone shops. So what can we do to change that? 
So on the individual basis, it's pretty hard unless you're a city planner or a city councilor. But ultimately, what cities like the L.A. or Kentucky or, or Louisville, which I know I'm mispronouncing, have found is that you can zone against these things. The as as the city planner put it to me, the market abhors a vacuum, and these businesses are looking for these market opportunities, and their market opportunities are you know a block with ten stores on them that they can buy knock down and build one store. Um, they cannot do that if you enact local zoning bylaws that say um, you can't combine storefronts or or even like um, the sidewalk has to be this wide or there needs to be this many windows because these businesses operate in a specific formula where if they don't meet all the conditions for their store, they can't operate there, right? Unless they have their whatever it is, 10,000 square feet, and all these conditions, they're like, no, we're moving on to the next possible location. So when you impose some of those rules, which are just all about like supporting a walkable neighborhood that has entrepreneurial opportunities for local people, um, it causes these people to move on the same way. If you put a lock on your bike, it doesn't mean no one can ever steal your bike, but it means the bike thief goes, all right, I'll keep going until I find a less yeah. locked bike. I think there's one other variable that has a big play on why you see so many corporate um, locations. Uh, I think it comes down to the developers and the relationships developers have with franchisees and franchisors. When they're building a like a, I don't know what we would call it, like a shopping area where you see these big box stores go up, and then there's usually like two or three anchor restaurants on the corner. They have pre-existing relationships with all these people who are opening these corporate and franchise locations. They want a path of least resistance. They want to build their Lowe's, their Walmart, their shopping market, their Best Buy big complex, and then they want to go to pre-existing relationships with franchises so they can just flip a switch, and it's almost like formulaic, you know? And I think that's part of it, too, is, is I don't know, I think education... I don't know. What are your thoughts as I say that? Do you disagree or, or agree? Well, it, 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 we've been avoiding using the term late stage capitalism during this conversation, but it's hard not to drop that when we're looking at just the end result of, yes, for every developer, whether it's an existing property or renovation, they know that they can call up and say Subway, Starbucks, whatever. You're like, Great. They want to, we got they want to fill the location. They want to get their rent. That's what they care about, you know? Yes, and, and that's great, except they also are starting to learn over the last 10 years, people are not excited to live in the building yeah. with the exact same stores as the, the block down the street. And so, you know, some of them have started hiring people to curate the main floor retail and like, let me find some more interesting business. It's just always more work. It's a bigger challenge. It's a bigger risk. Um, it's, it's ultimately not as profitable, but, um, nobody wants to live somewhere that looks exactly the same as everywhere else. So we have a little over a little less than two minutes right now. I want to squeeze in this idea of legislation. There's no way in a minute and a half we'll really be able to go deep into this, but this idea of changing it on more of like a, um, a legislative level. Uh, so by this, you, you thinking we should, we need more rules to in regulation to, help protect the independent restaurant operator? Well, I, the, the independent restaurant coalition, I'm sure you've had someone from there on to talk and I feel like they can go on this at much more length. And it, 
on a national level, I'm sure it's very different from on a local level. I actually Every haven't state. had somebody talk from, but I would oh, love really? to. So maybe this would be a, a good way to follow up there. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be great for you because, you know, that's their, a big part of their mission was like lobbying Congress for, you know, funds, but there's a lot of other asks. Uh, and I think they can probably go more in depth yeah. with that but, in the way that I'm just going to skip the surface. Okay. So I kind of want to push back there because I don't necessarily think that, I think it's a yes and. I think that mm-hmm. regulations are one way to get there, but I think people underestimate the the power of culture. And I think that people, if people understood that cultural evolution is exponential, whereas you know, biological evolution is not, it's more linear. Some say it's slightly exponential, but this idea that if we can, we have the means and resources to spread ideas and thoughts and values. And I think at the core, most people are good and they want to do the, the, the good thing. We're just learning at a rate that is unprecedented. We have access to so much information and we don't know what the right thing is. But I think that you're seeing a lot of people, if you take this idea of conscious capitalism, of, of putting your money, because we're learning a lot about the person, what makes what we need to be happy as far as human needs go. And you mentioned it earlier, what we need is security. Above that, we just need to feel like we're a, a, a part of something, like we belong, like we're seen, like we're valued. If we lean into human needs and human behavior in, in the way, if we go with the grain of how we're supposed to be on this planet, coexist with each other, and pull in values and ideas and thoughts on, on how to create a better world consciously, I think that we can have cultural evolution and I think that things can change a lot faster. But when you force things onto people and you make things laws, there tends to be more resistance because people by nature are chaotic. We don't like laws. We don't like rules. We don't like regulations. We want to have choice. And I think culture drives that. And culture, if you can change culture, you can make it happen way faster, which is the other cool thing because legislation lobbying takes time. Yes, and and I think it is a yes and like you, you know, it, as you say, after 900 interviews, of course, you're going to change your mind or just be more informed and more broadly thinking about a variety of issues. You know, I, I'm the same. If you start to write a book or host a podcast and at the end of it, however many years later, you have the exact same beliefs and worldviews that you did, then you weren't listening. Right. So part of, Part of this is about like continuing this going. And the last chapter of the book is this exactly what we're talking about here. It's, it's me debating between like people telling me we started this thing. We changed this culture within our restaurant and then within our County. And now we're scaling it up. And someone else who's, who's, who tells me like there's the limitations of voting with your fork are pretty low. And ultimately, people have to vote with their vote. And that's yeah. how we actually change laws, uh, at least in this country. And I'm, I'm not saying one is the right worldview, um, but I don't think you even get to the stage of having any political will to enact laws without changing culture. I mean, that's how things happen. Nobody from city council up to the White House is going to stick their neck out to propose any unpopular legislation uh, they're only going to do it because they're hearing this yeah. from their constituents because like it's become yeah. a cultural shift. I feel like this could be an entire conversation. If I do end up getting the the folks from uh, 
Oh my God, I'm forgetting that you mentioned them. Um, the IRC, the Independent yes, Restaurant Coalition. Um, if I do get them on the show, I'd love to invite you to maybe be a part of the conversation. I recognize that we're three minutes past our agreed upon time. You told me you had a hard stop, so I'm going to let you go. Before we do say goodbye, how can we connect with you? If you if we want to continue the conversation, if we want to get the book, or we want to hire you to consult, again, the, the book is The Next Supper right here the end of restaurants as we knew them and what comes after. Right. There. <laughs> uh, thanks. I, I have a friend who years ago asked a, a guest on his podcast, where can people reach you? And she started giving her, she was a professor started giving her office hours. She's like, well, from two to four on Wednesdays and in my office, um, she didn't realize that he met social media handles. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Corey Mintz. That's C O R E Y M I N T Z as you say, or Zed up here in Canada and it's CoreyMintz.ca. All my contact information uh, and some of my work is up there. And also have me back anytime to talk about this or Silver Age Marvel Comics. Beautiful. Uh, so I, I do have to have you call somebody out to be a future guest on the show. Um, who do you respect and admire? Is, you, is somebody you think needs to come on the show to share a message or, or an idea? It could be a restaurant owner or maybe it's a, a group like the, the Independent Restaurant Correlation. I think my top person, you probably have already talked to this person, but every time I talk to them, I'm like, that was awesome. Um, that excited me because they're so progressive and they're always doing something interesting, challenging the industry. But maybe you've had them, Amanda Cohen, I have chef not. owner of Dirt Candy in New York. Her. She's absolutely on my radar. I would love to make that happen. Thank you so much. He's so cool. Awesome. Corey, you got to get going. Thank you so much. Sorry to keep you over agreed upon time, but I have to say this. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Keep it up. Thank you so much. This was great. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Stoppable. Special thanks to today's guest, Corey Mintz, the author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them in What Comes After. And man, this book really kind of struck a chord with me. It echoes a lot of the same sentiments and I guess beliefs and I guess solutions I've come up with over the past 900 episodes. Really, we can do better. Uh, what I mean by that is we can transform this industry. We should transform this industry to be more fiscally conservative, fiscally. I don't know necessarily conservative is the right word, but sustainable. Uh, we barely get by. We champion this broken model that has been around for way too long and we need to do better. We can change the way we do business. And that all starts with educating each other and educating the consumer of what it costs to do business to the standards they expect. And we we can no longer sacrifice what we need to be mentally, physically, emotionally healthy uh, to just make sure our consumers are happy, you know? And uh, that, again, I think comes down to educating the consumer on the cost of sourcing food, on, you know, assembling this food and taking care of the people who deliver it to you and serve it to you. So, Lots of great things came from this book and this interview. Again, thank you so much, Corey Mintz. As you're listening to this, I am on my way to Toronto. I am connecting with Matt Rolf, the author of You Can't Do It Alone. Loving this book. And I know you guys are going to love it too. Some um, really great things I know are going to come from this interview as I'm recording this right now in Toronto. And hopefully I get some more 
new leads while I'm out there. Um, if we can't get to them this time, we'll absolutely get to them on my next trip out to Toronto. And before we say goodbye, I have to remind you that this podcast needs your support. Like I said, we're out in Toronto uh, interviewing the author of You Can't Do It Alone and We Can't Do It Alone. If you want to support this podcast and this mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, please share this episode with everybody and anybody you know in the restaurant industry subscribe to our YouTube channel. Head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. We're going to have some great video content coming your way and support our sponsors and affiliates. Lastly, special thanks to Jared at Sumadre podcast and Savin Sam over at SavinSam.com for helping me gather this content on the road. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.